for coming on back on time. I think Tom is, is rounding up the, uh, the stragglers uh, out in the courtyard, um, but, but we'll, we'll get started. Um, it, it's, it's so nice to be here. It's so nice to be at the Rancho Bernardo. It's so nice to, to get to know um, so many great people over the course uh, of the week. I mean, this is really, uh, if, if, if every week of the year could be like this one, uh, it, would, it would just be perfect. And uh, it's, it's so much fun to be able to talk about American history. And Tom has given me uh, a, a pretty challenging task. Uh, he wants me to talk about liberty and the American experience um, in, in two lectures. And, and so there's a lot to, to cram in. I, I, I spoke yesterday about the American Revolution and uh, how leading up to the Declaration of Independence, we defined what the purpose of our government would be. Uh, this morning, I'm going to look at the period that followed after the American Revolution and consider what the process was um, that, that unfolded um, after the, the securing of independence. And of course we know that the North and the South, the various uh, states that came together to fight against Great Britain, they, they knew what they were opposing. But around what were they uniting? I mean, what was to be the purpose of their union? They knew that they wanted to join together to tell the British that they wanted to be left alone. And that really is sort of the core of American unity. And it's a very particularly, uh, you know, kind of idiosyncratic basis of unity. We unite around the principle that we want to be left alone. We unite around the principle that we want to be left to enjoy our rights. We unite around the principle that we want independence, that we want self-governance, not just collective self-governance as a nation, but self-governance as 13 independent states and self-governance as individual people. And, and so there is this kind of tension within American history about the degree to which we are going to be able to make decisions individually, the degree to which and the occasions on which we will make decisions collectively. And this is a theme that has run throughout American history. We, we know that the uh, constitutions that were made for the states in the aftermath of independence in 1776, as well as the Articles of Confederation um, that the Continental Congress drafted up uh, as a plan for national government, all very much reflect some of the disagreements that we had with the British government in the run-up to the American Revolution. And, and so notably, the state constitutions and the Articles of Confederation had very weak executives, no more heavy-handed royal governors. After uh, this period of taxation without representation, it's probably no surprise that we empowered uh, the, the state governments to collect taxes, um, but, but the powers that they had were pretty weak. It's no surprise that Congress, under the Articles of Confederation, really could only request that states give it money. It couldn't compel them to do so. And as I'll discuss tonight when I talk about George Washington and the War for Independence, this caused a number of people um, to think that we needed some sort of firmer union, that we needed a stronger constitution. And so in 1787, um, they gathered together at Philadelphia, and they draw up the Constitution um, of the United States, one that does have a stronger executive, 
one that does provide Congress with the power to tax, one that they think is strong enough to adequately protect our liberty. You know, too much government is certainly a problem, but you could argue that too little government can be a problem as well. That's what they argued, that, that government under the Articles wasn't sufficient to protect people's rights, that threats at home as well as threats abroad could undermine this project that began in 1776. And of course, when we think about uh, the founders of, of the United States, when we think about some of the greatest minds, um, oftentimes we, we think about the founding fathers and uh, we, we, we pay attention to the uh, contributions of people like Alexander Hamilton there on the left or James Madison, um, known as the father of the Constitution in the center or Thomas Jefferson on the right. I mean, these are individuals who uh, were not only uh, statesmen, these are real political thinkers. These are real political theorists. And much of the government that uh, we established is, is owed largely to them. We, uh, we know, too, that these individuals who uh, were so uh, central to the, the establishment of this new American project, we know that they didn't always agree. Uh, Hamilton and Madison, in some ways, are the, uh, the wonder twins of the Constitutional Convention. Uh, they were very much uh, involved together in uh, framing the Constitution, except when Hamilton was scampering off to New York because things weren't always going his way. Uh, but they were also very involved in justifying the Constitution, co-authoring with John Jay the Federalist Papers, you know, arguing that ratification um, is a decision that, that states, in, in, in the case of the Federalist Papers in particular, in New York should make. And uh, they really thought that they were simpatico, that they, that they uh, understood one another. Madison and Hamilton were explaining through the Federalist Papers the Constitution not only to their readers, not only to the American people, but they were also sort of explaining it to themselves. And they really believed that they were on the same page. They really believed that they had a shared vision for what this new government should be. And uh, it was startling for Madison to see Alexander Hamilton after the Constitution is ratified, after government goes into operation under the presidency of George Washington, after Hamilton becomes Secretary of the Treasury. It was startling for Madison to see Alexander Hamilton proposing things that, in Madison's eyes, were not authorized under the federal Constitution. Things like the national government's assumption of the state's revolutionary war debts. Things like the creation of a national bank. And uh, Madison was, was, was really startled. He was really shocked. He, he, he thought that either Hamilton um, had been lying during the ratification process, not only to the American people, but to him, or, 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 or that he was lying now. There was a real fundamental inconsistency that really shook Madison's faith in this man who was once his friend. And Alexander Hamilton, you know, he hadn't changed in his view. It was Madison who had changed. And in, in some ways, uh, these disagreements are ones on principle. But in other respects, these are disagreements 
that, that occur between people with different personalities. These are personal disagreements as well as political ones. During the, uh, during the ratification process, of course, Jefferson was in France. And uh, Hamilton once wrote a letter to uh, uh, a friend, Edward Carrington, in 1792. And he's trying to explain this, this meltdown and his relationship with Madison. And I, I call this Hamilton's eighth grade letter, because it's almost like he's in junior high school. And uh, he's, he's, he feels jilted by his friend. It's as if the Constitutional Convention had been some sort of summer camp. And he and James Madison were these you know, inseparable buddies making those little like bracelets for each other and uh, <laughs> sending each other text messages. Um, but then the summer ended. And the school year began, and there's that kid, Tom Jefferson, who had been off in France on vacation, serving as our, our, our ambassador. But when he comes back, when he joins the government as Secretary of State, at lunchtime, Madison wants to sit with Jefferson and not with Alexander Hamilton. And this, this makes Alexander Hamilton very mad, very, very mad. And, and the split between Madison and Jefferson on the one hand, and, and Hamilton and uh, Vice President um, John Adams on the other, is really going to animate the Washington administration. George Washington tries to stay above it all. Um, he tries to remain a president above party. Um, he tries to, uh, to not choose sides between the Hamiltonian Federalists and the Jeffersonian Republicans. There are a number of, of instances during Washington's administration um, where he's confronted with difficult and hard choices. People are disagreeing not only about the, the, the direction of American government at home, but also the direction of American government abroad. With, with whom should we side between Britain and France, who seem perpetually to be at war? Should we side with, with, with Britain? Should we side with France? France, of course, was beginning its revolution. The French Revolution, um, Jefferson had been present to witness the beginning of it, the, the, the hopeful and promising start of the French Revolution. But of course, as we know, the French Revolution would begin to change and morph and, 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 and spin out of control. Should, should we continue our alliance with France? Should we gravitate toward Britain? Should we steer a neutral course? I mean, these are some of the questions that divided America and divided the Washington administration. What should we do in the face of domestic challenges and domestic insurrections? One of Hamilton's uh, programs was to create a series of, of internal taxes, including a tax on whiskey. And whiskey, as many of you know, um, has, has, has many uses. Um, but one of the uses that it had in the back country of America, where hard currency was in short supply, uh, it was sort of a proxy for currency. People used whiskey to barter. You know, you could imagine why whiskey would be a useful currency. You wouldn't want to use as currency something that would go bad, something that wouldn't keep. Whiskey, if anything, could get better with age. And yet this tax upon whiskey, this intrusive tax upon whiskey, which sent federal tax collectors out into uh, the countryside, out into places like western Pennsylvania, um, to, to, to take a look, to go inside people's houses and basements, to look to see if they had a whiskey still, really outraged people out there. I mean, they felt as if this far off, distant government, where they had inadequate representation, 
was imposing upon them this onerous tax. It was like it was the 1760s all over again. And uh, if, if they were in violation of the whiskey tax, if they were called to court, they had to go to court all the way from western Pennsylvania to Philadelphia, a journey that could take weeks, precious, valuable weeks, if those weeks were uh, coinciding with the time to plant or the time to harvest. So this was a tax that for them was really devastating. And, and, and so there's this uprising in western Pennsylvania, and George Washington makes the decision um, that he is not going to uh, have a, 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 a redo of Shays' Rebellion in the 17, uh, 1780s in western Massachusetts. There's an uprising that many people uh, saw as evidence of the weakness of government because it took months to put it down. It took months to regain control in western Massachusetts. And, and so Washington um, puts together a military force of 13,000 people, larger than the number of American troops who were present to defeat the British at Yorktown and dispatches them into western Pennsylvania to crush this whiskey rebellion. And a lot of Jeffersonian Republicans saw this as, as evidence that our government, our, our government even under George Washington, our government which was supposed to protect American liberty, was becoming more like the British government that we had just overthrown. And, and, and so these tensions are, are, are very much present in the 1790s. And this disagreement between the Federalists and the Republicans is a disagreement that is not just about politics. It's about the vision for America. It's about what kind of nation this will be, what kind of nation this will become, about whether our Constitution is a license for government power or whether it should be properly viewed as a restraining order, which limits government power. Washington did his best to try to steer a neutral course. And he himself was really the, the, the thing that held this nation together. People might disagree with Washington's particular decisions, but most Americans were united around the notion that Washington himself was a good man, that Washington himself was, was somebody who respected the limits of government. And one of the great things that, that Washington um, did and I'll talk more about this tonight, was Washington was willing to step away from power. He stepped away from power as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. He also stepped away from power as president of the United States. So after serving two terms, he announced his decision to step down. And Washington, uh, as, as soon as this, this decision is, is made, it's, it's almost as if somebody you know, fired a, a gun and the horse race began to see who would be the next president of the United States. And pretty quickly, the two factions, the Federalists and the Republicans, coalesced around the idea that the two names that would be put forward would include John Adams, the Vice President, and Thomas Jefferson, the Secretary of State. Adams, the Federalist, Jefferson, the Republican. And, and, and these two men, they have their own history. I mean, they really are uh, uh, an, an odd couple. And it's, it's almost ironic that they would be opponents in the election of 1796 because they did go back so far. I mean, all the way to 1776. 20 years earlier, they had been the dynamic duo of the project of independence. 20 years earlier, they had been in the Continental Congress together. Jefferson, the pen of independence. Adams, the mouth of independence. And, uh, 
Adams, of course, and Jefferson, too, were on the committee to draft the Declaration. And Jefferson thought because Adams was his, his senior, because Adams had been so vociferously um, behind the call for independence, that Adams should take the lead in writing the document. And John Adams, he turned to Thomas Jefferson, he said, no, 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 you must do it for three reasons. Reason number one, I, John Adams, am obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular, and you are very much otherwise. Reason two, you can write 10 times better than I can. And reason three, and Adams, of course, knows that the war has begun in his home state of Massachusetts. New England is fully on board this, this project for independence, but it's the South that needs to be drawn in. So Adams says, reason three, you are a Virginian, and a Virginian ought to be at the head of this business. And, and so Jefferson writes the de Declaration. It's ratified by the Continental Congress. And then both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson um, go back home to their home states where the action really is. Adams, of course, is going to help draft Massachusetts's constitution. Jefferson is going to serve as governor of Virginia and help reform the laws there. And, and then their parallel lives sort of converge again as they're sent to France to do diplomatic duty um, as understudies to Benjamin Franklin. Eventually, Franklin will go home. Jefferson will be elevated as our ambassador to France. Um, John Adams will, after independence, become our ambassador to Great Britain, to the court of St. James. Uh, the two men travel through Europe together. You know, I could sort of imagine them, you know, they're like such buddies, right? I could imagine them staying at youth hostels and riding Eurail, and um, they travel around the countryside of Britain. They, they, go, to, they go to Stratford-on-Avon, and even back then, the, the home of, of William Shakespeare, the bard himself, was a tourist attraction, so they paid the small fee to get into the house, and uh, they walk into uh, Shakespeare's study, and Jefferson, um, maybe with a gleam in his eye, he sort of spots Shakespeare's desk, and behind his desk, his chair. Jefferson reaches into his pocket, and he pulls out a little penknife, and he whittles off a sliver of wood from the chair, and he puts it into his pocket. And then he whittles off another sliver of wood from the chair, and he hands it to John Adams. BFF! Best friends forever. Nothing, nothing could divide these guys, except politics, except politics. And, and, and so when government goes into operation under the new constitution, when Adams becomes the vice president for George Washington and Jefferson becomes the secretary of state, their, their relations are, are instantly chilled. And now in 1796, people are, are, are putting forth their names as candidates for the presidency. And it is a, a, a true knockdown, drag out campaign. And uh, a close one as well. And Adams defeats Jefferson by three electoral votes. So Jefferson having come in second under the rules uh, at the time, under the Constitution prior to the 12th Amendment, Jefferson as a second place finisher becomes John Adams as vice president. And, and yet, to say that Jefferson is part of the Adams administration would really be misleading. And Jefferson was uh, cut out of the decision-making, which he was probably happy to be. He spent his time presiding over the Senate, um, working as the president of the American Philosophical Society, this wonderful um, scientific club uh, in Philadelphia where the, the nation's capital was located. And, and watching in horror as the Adams administration became what Jefferson described as a reign of witches. <laughs> <laughs> 
Pretty, pretty tough stuff. And, but yet you could imagine why Jefferson would be so beside himself. You know, one of the decisions that George Washington had made, one thing that he really fretted over, was, was how to deal with Great Britain, which had been in the 1790s harassing our ships in the high seas. France was less capable of doing the same thing, but to the degree that it could, it was doing the same thing. Washington decided to, to uh, sign a treaty with Great Britain that had been negotiated by John Jay, the Chief Justice. And, and this really alienated France. This really, uh, in the eyes of the French, pushed us into the British orbit. And, and, and by the late 1790s, um, we're in what, what historians call the quasi-war with France, this undeclared naval war where our, our ships are, are, are subject to the harassment of the French fleet, where uh, our sailors are, are, are being uh, uh, in, impressed by the, uh, by the French. The British will do the same thing a decade later. But um, Americans are really up in arms. And Jefferson, of course, having been our ambassador to France, associated in the public mind with the French, is in a pretty precarious position. France is now our enemy. The French Revolution by this point has fully spun out of control. France, which in the American mind had once stood for liberty, now stands for anarchy and, and tyranny. And uh, Adams and the Federalists have to make a decision. What do we do with France? A lot of hardcore Federalists push Adams to declare war on France. And certainly nothing would be better for Federalist political prospects. They're associated in the public mind with the British side. If we declared war against the French, the Jeffersonian Republicans, they would be associated with our sworn enemy. Adams, in, in probably one of the best decisions of his administration, decides that he is going to back down, that he's going to step away from war with France. He knows that we have just too much to lose. American lives, American fortunes, perhaps even American independence itself. If we go to war with France, Adams thinks it will push us too far into the British orbit, that we will lose our diplomatic independence to Great Britain. And that's if we win, if we lose to France. Who knows? We could lose independence itself. We could, we could be sucked into the French orbit. But, but Adams has, has a difficult time persuading members of his party that we should steer a course toward peace. And, and, and really, as a compromise, he signs into law in 1798 the Alien and Sedition Acts. These are designed to prepare us for war, should it come. And, and the most odious component of the Alien and Sedition Acts, the Sedition Acts, makes it a crime, makes it against the law to criticize officers of the government, to criticize in a newspaper government action. And, and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and the Jeffersonian Republicans are flabbergasted. I mean, this is 1798. Just seven years earlier, we had ratified the Bill of Rights. We had ratified the First Amendment. What, what was it about the First Amendment that begins, Congress shall make no law, that Adams and the Federalist Congress did not understand? Jeffersonian Republicans become increasingly convinced that the fate of the Republic hangs in the balance, that the American Revolution has, has been seized by counter-revolutionary forces, that our independence from Great Britain, is, as well as our commitment to liberty, are at risk. And, and so, in the election of 1800, a rematch between Adams and Thomas Jefferson 
the stakes could not appear to be higher. This was a political bloodbath. I mean, Adams and Jefferson, in accordance with the standards of the day, they hang back. They act as if they are not involved. They don't campaign. They don't travel around. They don't give speeches. But in the newspapers, in the pamphlets, at the pulpit on Sunday, all of, of Americans seem to be debating the meaning of their own future. All of these Americans seem to be debating whether we should continue down the course of federalism or whether we should turn to Thomas Jefferson. The, uh, the Federalists uh, brought out their heavy guns. They, uh, they tried to make this a race, not so much between Jefferson and John Adams, but Jefferson and George Washington. And of course, George Washington had died in December of 1799. And Washington was, was uh, always popular, but he was never more popular than he was immediately after his death. And, and the Federalists try to make this a contest where people will essentially compare Jefferson to Washington. And it's a comparison that Federalists believe uh, it, 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 that will not be uh, favorable to Thomas Jefferson. This is a cartoon from the, uh, from the, the, the election. The, uh, the title is, Look on this picture and on this. And you see George Washington, you know, looking resplendent, uh, better than ever. And underneath him are, are some books. Some books, and on their binding is inscribed order and law and religion. Beneath Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson looks ragged and haggard. Beneath Jefferson are books with the names of uh, philosophers like Tom Paine, who uh, has lost much of his popularity um, in America thanks to books like uh, The Age of Reason, Justifying the French Revolution, or Condorcet, or Voltaire. You know, over, over Washington is this, this laurel wreath from which beams of, of light extend. Over Jefferson is this snuffed-out lamp. Underneath Jefferson, there's a, a serpent and an alligator. Underneath Washington, you see the Federal Eagle, and here maybe they're giving too much away, the British Lion. So for Federalists, the choice was clear. For Americans and for Republicans, the choice was clear as well. If we continue down this course, where we see clear violations of civil liberty, where we see newspaper writers who oppose the government being thrown into jail, how can we hope to preserve this fragile experiment in republicanism? The election, again, is going to be a close one. Only this time, the election isn't close between Jefferson and John Adams. This time, Jefferson ends up being tied in the Electoral College with his own running mate, New Yorker Aaron Burr. And uh, Aaron Burr is uh, on the ballot, as is Thomas Jefferson. Under the rules of the day, state electors voting separately would, would cast their electoral ballots and send them to the national capital where they would be counted. And, and really, the trick was somebody needed to throw away a vote or two for the vice presidential candidate because that way he would come in second. And the, and the person intended to be the president would come in first. But the Jeffersonian Republicans were so well disciplined in 1800 that, that nobody 
voted for anyone other than Jefferson and Aaron Burr. And, and so they're tied in the electoral colleges, in the electoral college. And under the rules of the Constitution, when that happens, the choice is going to be made by the House of Representatives. And, and though this was the election of 1800, the House of Representatives that had been seated since 1798 at the height of the quasi-war would make this decision. And it was a heavily Federalist House of Representatives. And there was the idea among some Federalists that if they nominated, if they elected Aaron Burr, maybe he would do their bidding. Maybe he, owing his election to the Federalists, would agree to work with them and continue America on its current course. And then there were others, others who were Federalists, who thought that this would be a particularly bad idea. And indeed, it's arguable that the election of Thomas Jefferson by the House of Representatives in February of 1801 is attributable to one single man, one single man who you might think would be the least likely person to make the call for Thomas Jefferson. And who would that man be? It's such a good movie, like movie ending. Who would that man be? Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton, from his home in New York, begins a letter-writing campaign. He writes letters to different Federalist members of Congress, including a man named James Baird, who is the single congressman from the state of Delaware. And of course, in the Electoral College, uh, when there's a tie, the House of Representatives gets to make the call, but the House of Representatives, they don't vote as individual representatives. In the House of Representatives, when they select the president, they vote as state delegations. And so Baird is a delegation of one. He controls the vote of the state of Delaware. And, and Hamilton writes to him and he says, Jefferson has principles with which we disagree, but Aaron Burr has no principles whatsoever. <laughs> and so thanks, thanks largely to Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson ends up becoming the president of the United States. And on March 4th, 1801, when he takes the oath of office, he uh, delivers in, in sort of hushed tones his inaugural address. He was you know, famously uh, not so great as a public speaker. But it's okay because the text of his uh, inaugural address had already been released to the, the Republican newspaper in the new national capital of Washington, D.C. It had already been printed. Uh, people were able to, to read the text and follow along as, as Jefferson talked about the many blessings that America enjoyed. He said we have a fantastic country, we have fantastic resources, we have great people, a great culture, great history, a great commitment to liberty. He asked, what else do we need? What, what else remains to close the circle of our felicities? And he turned to the audience and he said, one thing more, a wise and frugal government which shall restrain men from injuring one another shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement, and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This, Jefferson said, is the sum of good government. And, and, and in these words, Jefferson really lays out his agenda for governing. And he has a great deal of success in reducing the size and the footprint of government. During the course of Jefferson's two terms in office, he will pay off one-third of the national debt. Yet he will also repeal all internal taxes, like the dreaded whiskey tax. He, he slashes the federal workforce, 
which was comprised mostly of tax collectors. So by repealing these taxes, he can lay off all these tax collectors. How satisfying that must be. <laughs> he even reduces the size of the military, although he does uh, create West Point, the United States Military Academy. It's one of his, his first agenda items. Um, I think because uh, West Point, in Jefferson's eyes, was the sort of constitutionally allowable component of a national university, a national university for which um, to create it in full, he would need to secure a constitutional amendment, one that never came. So Jefferson really does try to, to reduce the size and the scope of the government, um, and, and he is largely successful. But of course, Jefferson faces some of his own temptations to grow and increase the size of government. And those come largely with an opportunity to grow and increase the size of the United States itself. And of course, I'm, I'm referring to this wonderful opportunity that was dangled before Thomas Jefferson when Napoleon offered to uh, James Monroe and, and Robert Livingston, our, our emissaries to France, to sell us the entirety of Louisiana for just $15 million, about three cents an acre. Jefferson thought that this was an incredible opportunity. And there were a lot of things that, that argued in favor of adding Louisiana to the United States. He feared that if France should retain possession of Louisiana, that, that we would ultimately have to be enemies with France. Jefferson said, if France retains Louisiana, we will have to marry ourselves to the British fleet. And this is Thomas Jefferson, the supposed England hater Francophile. Of course, Britain retained possession of Canada. With France to our west, with, with Britain to our north, it was almost a, a law of physics in the 18th and early 19th centuries that, that these nations would be at war. We would have troops marching through our territory. We would be drawn in to this, this bitter European conflict. But if we possessed Louisiana, it would act almost in the same way that the Atlantic Ocean acted. It would separate us from the problems of Europe. It would be this land moat that would isolate us from European warfare and, 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 and problems. And also, of course, it would provide Americans with opportunity to expand. We spoke yesterday about some of the beliefs that members of the founding generation had about the cycles of, of history. And uh, Jefferson, of course, he, he, he loved agriculture. He said, those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God, that they're great citizens, that they're independent of minds and means, that they're self-reliant, they're their own bosses. They have the, the sort of right Republican character to allow this nation to survive. And yet, we also know that during the course of American history, you know, throughout the 1600s and 1700s, on into the 1800s. Every 20 years, America's population would double. It would double. And, and Jefferson knew that it was just a, a matter of time be, before American population density began to give us a more urban character. We would be crowded into cities where Jefferson believed vice would predominate. When he traveled through Europe, he saw European cities, and, and, and he was horrified by what he saw. But here in America, 
if we could add Louisiana to the uh, United States, we could avoid the development that Jefferson thought would ultimately lead to our destruction. We could avoid this, this destructive development because instead of traveling as a nation through time, instead of moving forward through time, we as a nation could freeze ourselves in this agrarian Republican moment and expand across space. This land, Louisiana, Jefferson said, would give us enough land so that we could be farmers for 100 generations. Another time, maybe after having a bottle of wine or two, he said, it will give us enough land so that we could remain farmers for 1,000 generations. So, I mean, this was essential in his eyes to the preservation of the American character. And the preservation of American character, Jefferson believed, was essential to the preservation of American liberty. And yet, there's a problem. There's a problem with Louisiana. And Jefferson recognizes that this is a problem, a big problem. There is nothing in the federal constitution that authorizes the national government to acquire new land. The Constitution, in many respects, was sort of a marriage between North and South. They, they thought that they, they, they understood what the character of their union would be. They knew that the Western territory that existed at the time of ratification, all that land up to the Mississippi River, they knew that that, that would be divided up, that that would be incorporated as states. But they never bargained that the land beyond the Mississippi would be added to the Union. And this would fundamentally change things. You know, I, I, I've mentioned some of you, uh, some of you, my wife, uh, her name is Christine. A few of you have met her in previous years. Um, we've been married now for 12 years. I think it's going really well. But what if I went home after Cato University and Christine greeted me at the door, big smile on her face, and, and she said, you know, honey, I have, I have a big surprise for you. And I said, what? What is it? And what if she turned and said, meet our new husband, Julio. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the North and the South had been in this marriage that thanks to the Louisiana Purchase was now this strange menage a trois with the West. And, and, and the question was, how is this going to change the balance of power? Will the states of the West be like the North or will they be like the South? Will the future residents of Kansas be cod fishermen like the people of Massachusetts? Or would they instead be farmers like the people of Virginia? This wasn't lost on the Federalists in New England. And it wasn't lost either on Thomas Jefferson. And he resolved to do the right thing. If the Constitution doesn't allow you to do something, but you really want to do it, what do you do? You have, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> you have an amendment. Jefferson drafts a constitutional amendment that will allow him to add Louisiana to the Union. And he shows it to Albert Gallatin, his Treasury Secretary, and he shows it to, to James Madison, now his Secretary of State. And, and Madison, he's almost like the, in cartoons, they have, uh, you know, an angel on your shoulder and a devil on your shoulder. And in this instance, maybe Madison is sort of like the cartoon devil on, uh, on Thomas Jefferson's shoulder. 
there's his face. Um, and, and, and he says to Thomas Jefferson, don't do it. Don't float out this amendment. Don't try to get this amendment passed by Congress. Don't send it out for ratification to the states. Because it may not pass. It may not get ratified. The process might take too much time. The French might have second thoughts. They might back out of this agreement. If it's not ratified too, then it, then it becomes clear that it's unconstitutional. Allow, allow the Senate to ratify the treaty with France authorizing acquisition. Allow the House of Representatives to front the money, the funds necessary for this purchase. And, and let's ignore these uh, disagreements we have over whether it is authorized by the Constitution. And Jefferson swallows hard. He, he, he feels torn between two decisions that are mutually exclusive, two things that he values tremendously. One, fidelity to the Constitution and, and, and not over, overextending its bounds. And another, this wonderful, amazing opportunity to double the size of the nation peacefully and at the same time uh, allow us to avoid war and preserve Americans' character. It's a tough choice. He really can't win. He decides that the best way for America in the long run to avoid losing is to swallow hard and purchase Louisiana. So that is what Thomas Jefferson decides to do. So, so even he expands the size of government. Even he goes beyond the bounds of the Constitution. Jefferson, of course, is, uh, is going to retire after two terms. Madison, his hand-chosen um, successor, uh, will be the next president of the United States. Um, some of the foreign policy entanglements um, that had brought us uh, into conflict with the French um, would lead into the conflict known as the War of 1812, which would pit us against the British. Jefferson, meanwhile, gets to be uh, retired at Monticello, observing all of this from afar. Um, during his retirement, he rekindles his, his relationship with John Adams. The two men begin writing letters to one another. It's a fantastic correspondence. They talk about all the things you're not supposed to talk about. They talk about religion. They talk about politics. They talk about philosophy. Um, they talk about the kids these days. They, they, they felt uh, increasingly alienated by, by this new rising generation. They saw changes all around them. The United States, of course, was not only a new nation politically, but we were experiencing tremendous growth economically. And this new rising generation was really inhabiting a world that to them was increasingly unfamiliar. As the years passed, as these two men aged, they began to think increasingly about their legacy. By June of 1826, Thomas Jefferson quipped that he had one foot in the grave and the other uplifted to follow. He knew that his days were numbered and his health was failing him. By the end of June, he was on his deathbed and he expressed to those around him one final wish. He wanted to live to see the 4th of July, 1826, the 50th anniversary of American independence. As, as the days slowly passed, Thomas Jefferson would fall in and out of consciousness. 
his eyes would flutter open and he would turn to the men who were there at his bedside. His grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, his grandson-in-law, Nicholas P. Trist, and his doctor, a physician at the University of Virginia, which was his retirement project, creating a university, um, a man named Dr. Robley Dunglison. And his eyes would flutter open and he'd ask, is it the fourth? And they felt, you know, so crestfallen to have to disappoint him. No, it's not yet the fourth of July. And every time he would ask, his voice would get more weak. Is it the fourth? Finally, the night of July 3rd, 1826, it seemed as if Jefferson could die at any moment. His eyes flutter open. He looks at Nicholas Trist, a West Point dropout who apparently didn't have enough time under the honor code, because he asks, is it the fourth? And, and, and Trist just can't bear to let him down. And, and, and he says, yes, it's the 4th of July. And a lot of historians incorrectly state that is it the 4th, that those are the last words of Thomas Jefferson. And yet if you look at the account of Dr. Dunglison, Dr. Dunglison then offers Jefferson another dose of what is believed to be life-sustaining medication. And Jefferson, believing that it's the 4th of July, turns to Dunglison and says, no, doctor, nothing more. And that would be a horrible story if Thomas Jefferson died right then, right there, on July 3rd, 1826. But he doesn't die. He lives. He lives until noon the next day. And Thomas Jefferson dies 50 years to the hour after the ratification of American independence. A fantastic story. A tremendous story. One that is made even more amazing by the fact that five hours later, in Quincy, Massachusetts, John Adams, who was also on his deathbed, that John Adams would also die. These two men, these two driving forces behind the Declaration of Independence, both die on the 50th anniversary of its ratification. John Adams' last words, not knowing, of course, what had happened down in Charlottesville, Virginia, John Adams' last words were, Thomas Jefferson still survived. And I like to think that at that moment, you know, Thomas Jefferson being lifted skyward on the wings of angels was laughing his butt off because once again he had proven John Adams wrong. <laughs> but, but of course, but of course we know that in many respects, um, John Adams was right. Jefferson and his spirit, Jefferson and his ideas, the ideas of the American Revolution, the ideas of the revolutionary generation, they would survive. They continue to survive even though so much around them was changing. You know, when, when, when the Declaration was, was ratified, news of its ratification reached Boston by horseback. Fifty years later, after Jefferson's death, news of his death reached Boston by steamboat. At John Adams' uh, funeral, the uh, band of dignitaries who were present to lay him to rest afterwards walked the short distance to a ribbon-cutting ceremony, officially opening the first stretch of railroad track in America, which connected the, the quarry in Quincy, Massachusetts, to the future site of the Bunker Hill Monument. At, at Jefferson's graveside service, the students from the University of Virginia walked the, the five miles from the campus of their college, the grounds of the university, up the hill to Monticello, to, to peer down into the grave of Thomas Jefferson, this fallen pillar of the Enlightenment. And who would be standing among them? 
Who would be standing among those students but perhaps America's greatest 19th century romantic poet? Who am I talking about? Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, talk about two different generations. Edgar Allan Poe and Thomas Jefferson. And, and wherever you, you looked, you could see portents of change that were brought about by some of the tremendous economic changes that were uh, changing and developing America in the early 19th century. The market revolution brought about uh, in incredible enhancements and improvements for Americans. The quality of living was increasing. Our lifespans were growing. Our ability to, uh, to, to find different products at affordable prices, that was uh, becoming increasingly common. Americans uh, challenged uh, themselves by building things like canals. The Erie Canal was constructed between 1818 and 1825. It, uh, it stretched for 364 miles between Albany and Buffalo. It connected the Great Lakes with the Hudson River and New York City and the Atlantic Ocean and the rest of the world. This area that, that used to be called the back country. Now, perhaps because Americans are increasingly oriented toward it, now the back country is referred to as the frontier. From the back to the front, it goes in our consciousness as Americans begin to expand farther west. The Erie Canal, of course, uh, tackles one of the problems oftentimes associated with, with river transportation. It's one thing to, to use rivers to trade goods up until you reach the fall line. But what do you do when you hit whitewater rapids? Canals, of course, solve that problem by building locks you know, into which barges can float. The, the, the lock is sealed. Water is pumped in. They're brought to the next step, the next level of elevation, and the barge can, 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 can continue along. The Erie Canal increases, increases the speed of transportation fivefold, and the cost of transporting goods along its route drops from 19 cents a mile to transport a ton of goods prior to the Erie Canal to three cents a mile and eventually to one cent per mile. And, and, and so people who, who lived in New York City, you know, which had been a big city before, but cities, of course, weren't that big. Philadelphia, at the time of, of, of American independence, had a population that was really awe-inspiring to Americans. Philadelphia, at the time of American independence, was the second largest English-speaking city on the planet, second only to London. And how many people lived there? Any guesses? 30,000. 30,000 in Philadelphia. And New York was even smaller, but now with the Erie Canal, New York begins to boom. And, and, and cities all over with advances in transportation begin to grow. In part because before, their size was limited by the fact that you, you, you couldn't transport the firewood. You couldn't transport the food fast enough and affordably enough to feed the populations. But now with the Erie Canal, rather than, than growing apples and orchards that, that had populated what is now the Lower East Side, now you could, you could grow apples along the route of the Erie Canal. Now your food can be brought in effectively and cheaply and inexpensively and quickly from greater distances. Now Americans had the ability to compete over broader spaces. Now Americans could specialize. And, and, and instead of having artists who spent their, their hours uh, you know, chopping wood 
and growing food for themselves and doing the things that we did before the market revolution, which is essentially working tirelessly to avoid death. I mean, really, we, 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 we sometimes fail to appreciate what life was like before the market revolution. And nowadays, if it's wintertime and you're cold, what do you do? You turn up the thermostat. Back then, before the market revolution, if you were cold, what did you do? You chopped down a tree. That will warm you up. And if that doesn't, the firewood will. If, if we're hungry, we walk out onto the, onto the patio and are served the, uh, the, the scrumptious food of the Rancho Bernardo. Or we go to the grocery store. We pop something into the microwave. If they were hungry, they had to kill an animal or plant crops six months ago. You know, I mean, this is a, a different world that they inhabit. And yet the, the, the Erie Canal, canals throughout the United States, advancements in transportation and technology are allowing Americans to specialize, allowing artists like Thomas Cole to devote their time to painting. And they could be paid in cash, and they could, they could buy the things that they need to survive. We have, of course, not only canals, but also steamboats. The, uh, the problem with river transportation, of course, was that it was only good in one direction. There's one thing to, to you know, tr send goods downstream, but upstream could be a real challenge. Prior to the arrival of the steamboat, it took three months to go from New Orleans to St. Louis. After the steamboat, it took only three weeks. So when you begin to think about the degree to which markets opened and the areas within which people could trade expanded, Americans are able to enjoy uh, a, a greater uh, degree of bounty at a lower price. During this period, in the first half of the 19th century, per capita GDP doubles. And of course, it's not just thanks to canals and steamboats, but also railroads. You know, at the time of, of, of uh, Jefferson and Adams's death, railroads practically are non-existent. By the 1850s, there are more than 5,000 miles of railroad track crisscrossing America and interconnecting it. And the market revolution, of course, is not just because of advances in, in transportation, but also more broadly because of advances in technology. We have innovations like interchangeable parts. And we have new inventions um, like one that is probably the greatest thing ever to happen in American history and the worst thing ever to happen in American history. And of course, I'm talking about the cotton gin. The cotton gin is the, the greatest thing ever to happen in American history because it leads to a boom that enriches the United States. Cotton becomes the main source of our GDP. Um, cotton becomes uh, the, the number one export of the United States. Cotton was, for America, what oil is to Saudi Arabia. But of course, cotton was labor-intensive to grow. The cotton gin, of course, it made cotton a viable um, product because it, it, it solved a problem that had always been associated with cotton. Um, we've known each other for a while. We've gotten pretty friendly. I hope you won't mind, but I'm going to just ask generally the crowd, when you go underwear shopping, do you, go for the, do you buy the seeded underwear, or do you like the seedless underwear? <laughs> because the problem with cotton is that it had these sticky little seeds in the fiber, and, and, and to pull those, those seeds out was incredibly time-consuming. It, it took one person one whole day just to clean one pound of cotton. 
but thanks to the cotton gin, one person using a cotton gin could in a day clean 50 pounds of cotton. And yet, to plant the stuff, to tend the stuff, to cultivate the stuff, that remained very labor intensive. And, and what did people turn to? Um, increasingly in the Lower South, people turned to slavery. And so slavery, which as, as, as a national problem, it, it existed at the time of the American Revolution for sure, but it, it's kind of inspiring. After the American Revolution in the 1780s, many northern states where slavery existed but was less prevalent, many northern states passed laws of gradual emancipation. They, they were going to divorce themselves from this institution. And, and yet, at the same time, we see the cotton boom begin and the demand for slave labor in the South uh, be greater than ever. And many northern slave owners, you know, knowing that the day of emancipation for their slaves was about to come, sold them to the South. In the state of New York, for example, two-thirds of the enslaved people in New York never were emancipated because they were sold to the South. And so this, this national institution of slavery increasingly becomes the peculiar institution of the South. And of course, there are other things dividing the North and the South. Their economies during the market revolution become increasingly different. If the South is increasingly wedded to agriculture, in, in the North, you see the scenes of the rise of industry. In the North, you, uh, you see individuals like uh, a man from New Haven named Chauncey Jerome, who using interchangeable parts, who using kind of primitive assembly line techniques, um, makes clocks. Clocks before the market revolution were a true luxury item. I mean, they were, they were uh, you know, arts and, and, and science came together in these incredibly intricate and, and complex things. To own a clock was a, a real sign of status and wealth because they were extraordinarily expensive. Everyone made every component for a clock. It, 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 was, it was incredibly complicated, the, the level of, of expertise necessary to make one clock was uh, just almost unfathomable. But now, during the market revolution, with the interchangeable parts and assembly lines, Chauncey Jerome could pretty quickly and pretty inexpensively make clocks. The only problem for Chauncey Jerome was uh, the British kind of had a head start on all of this. And, and, and many uh, American uh, factory owners found this. That the British were slightly ahead of us. And Chauncey Jerome, he could make a pretty decent clock for, say, $8. But the British, they made an even better clock for $6. So what's going to happen? What are people going to buy? Going to buy the, the better, cheaper British clock. So people like Chauncey Jerome and others in the North have an idea. They begin to call for tariffs, tariffs levied upon manufactured goods from Europe, specifically and especially England. If you put a, a $4 tariff on a $6 British clock, how much does it cost? Simple math, right? $10. And what does Chauncey Jerome's clock cost? Well, we said it cost $8, but what does it now cost? Now it's $9.50, right? For Chauncey Jerome, this is, a tariff is fantastic. Arguably for his labor force, the tariff is fantastic. But the tariff is not fantastic for American consumers. And it's especially bad for Americans who grow cotton for export. 
and other agricultural crops for export. Because what do the Europeans do? They retaliate. They retaliate by putting tariffs on what we send to them. And, and this, this, this fight over the tariff has the potential to really undermine the American Union. The uh, president at the time is Andrew Jackson. His vice president is South Carolina's John C. Calhoun. South Carolina says that the tariff is constitutionally problematic. It refuses to enforce it. It's going to block the enforcement of the tariff. Andrew Jackson rattles his saber. There's talk of sending federal troops to South Carolina. Tensions run high. There's a, 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 a dinner, a political dinner, celebrating Thomas Jefferson's birthday. And both Andrew Jackson and John C. Calhoun are present. And Jackson, he rises up and he gives a toast. He says, to the Union, it must be preserved. And then John C. Calhoun one-ups him and gives a toast um, to the Union after our liberty, most dear. People oftentimes talk about the, uh, the ravages of the office of the presidency. You sometimes see before and after photos of presidents um, looking all fresh and, and fantastic at the start of their presidency and looking pretty worn and haggard by the end of their presidency. The same is, is perhaps true for vice presidents. Certainly it is for John C. Calhoun. Um, he would not be uh, Andrew Jackson's vice president in Jackson's second term. He would be replaced by Martin Van Buren in part because of their political disagreements with one another. But when he left the vice presidency, this once dashing young man had been transformed. <laughs> so there are a lot of disagreements between the North and the South. They disagree over economic policy. People begin to question, should we have a national economic policy? Is this something that the framers had intended? They disagree, of course, about slavery. And they disagree, too, about expansion into the West. I mean, one of the things that Louisiana did, and one of the things that, that new territory would be added, that would be added after Louisiana did, is it raised this question. Will the West be more like the North, or will it be more like the South? Will the new states of the West be places for free labor, or will they be places for slave labor? And every time a new state was added, tensions would rise, all the way up to the election of 1860. You know, the, uh, the first party system of Federalists and Jeffersonian Republicans would give way in the age of Jackson to what historians sometimes call the second party system of Jacksonian Democrats and Whigs. But over the issue of expansion and the issue of slavery, the second party system started to fall apart. And by the time you get to the election of 1860, we have four candidates running for the presidency of the United States, one of them representing a new political party, Abraham Lincoln, the new Republican Party, a party that had sworn to stop the expansion of slavery into the West. Lincoln is not even on the ballot in 10 southern states. He's incredibly unpopular in the South. They see the writing on the wall. If he wins, if, 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 if there are no new um, states in the West that, that allow slavery, then the South will be this, this permanent minority within the United States. And, and Lincoln in this four-person contest, he, he, he only gets about 40% of the popular vote, yet he earns 59% of the electoral vote. And Lincoln becomes president in the United States. I, I feel very sorry for Abraham Lincoln. But usually when you become president, you know, like the last time uh, in 2008 when President Obama was inaugurated, you know, there was this big concert at the Lincoln Memorial and Bono sang to him and 
their ticker tape parades and Pepsi changed its logo to kind of look like Obama's campaign logo. Not so for Abraham Lincoln. You know, when he took the oath of office, states had already begun to secede from the union. They left the union because of his election. Harking back to the American Revolution, the Charleston Mercury said after Lincoln's election, the tea has been thrown overboard. The revolution of 1860 has been initiated. And so South Carolina withdrew from the union, followed by more and more states. And, and, and thus we have the Civil War. And, and Lincoln, while his party stood against the expansion of slavery, Lincoln made it clear that his aim at the start of the war was not to end slavery. He said uh, famously in 1862, if I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. And, and that is really Lincoln's game plan during the, the Civil War. Initially, people in the North try to bring the South back in by promising that they will, that they will forever allow slavery within the United States. Yet by the midpoint of the war, Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation, saying that all of the slaves in uh, southern territory that is not occupied by the Union will be freed. Now that's a, a curious sort of proposition. Lincoln is freeing none of the slaves that he might have the power to free, and all of the slaves who he is powerless to free. But as the Union makes inroads into southern territory, as the South is eventually conquered, the writing is on the wall. Slavery is on its way toward extinction. And then finally, of course, in 1865, we have the passage of the 13th Amendment outlawing slavery throughout the United States. People are divided not only between North and South. They're divided about what the Civil War is to be about. You know, is this a war about liberty? Or is this a war about force? I mean, people in the North seem pretty clear to believe that this is a war about liberty. Captain Henry Howell says every soldier knows he is fighting not only for his own liberty, but even more for the liberty of the whole human race for all time to come. This, this, this war, this sort of existential crisis for the United States, where more than 600,000 Americans lose their lives, is, is, is just a tragedy. And, of course, it is a tragedy for those who are advocates of small and limited government. The United States government had been relatively small prior to the Civil War. But as a result of the Civil War, it begins to expand tremendously. Federal spending increased. The size and scope of what the federal government thought it could do increased. The, 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 the government owned factories to produce material for the war. The government uh, squashed civil liberties during the war, Lincoln suspending habeas corpus without authorization. I mean, and this is really just as James Madison feared. He said, of all the enemies of true liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. Debts and taxes and armies and armies of bureaucrats all of these things result from war. And that would certainly be the story that would follow. The, uh, the Union government, of course, heady with its victory, 
engages in increasingly ambitious projects, such as reconstruction. The idea is that, that, that the government had it within its power, that it had the resources to reconstruct the South, to remake this society. It's one thing to outlaw slavery. It's another thing to try to change people. And yet there was this confidence that that could be done through government programs. Confidence that was, that was shown again in the 1880s with the passage of the Dawes Act, which, re, which aimed to reconstruct Native American people. And, and this leads us right into the progressive era, so-called. This era where, where people believe that uh, experts should be able to run the lives of those who were less learned. It was during the progressive era that you see rise to things like Frederick Winslow Taylor's um, principles of scientific management. Taylor uh, comes up with new ways to organize factories, but these principles are going to be applied to government and, and, and more broadly to society at large. Taylor writes, it is only through enforced standardization of methods, enforced adoption of the best implements and working conditions, and enforced cooperation that this faster work can be assured. And the duty of enforcing the adoption of standards and enforcing the cooperation rests with management alone. He says, I can say without the slightest hesitation that the science of handling pig iron is so great that the man who is physically able to handle pig iron and is sufficiently phlegmatic and stupid to choose this for his occupation is rarely able to comprehend the science of handling pig iron. And of course, the progressives are, are, are armed not only with a supreme confidence in their own abilities, but also an incredible degree of wariness in, 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 in the new people who are arriving on American shores, people who are coming from exotic, un-American places like Italy. What to do with these people? Public schools, in many ways, are not only for education, but for assimilation and indoctrination. Progressives uh, took the wonderful 19th century temperance movement, where people voluntarily offered to give up alcohol because it wasn't right for them and, and, and made it mandatory through prohibition. We have progressive presidents like Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, who leads us into World War I, another war that dramatically expands the powers of the federal government, that dramatically expands its control over the American people and the American economy. And of course, this is followed by the Great Depression and the New Deal of Franklin Roosevelt and more government programs and more government growth. And then the Second World War, which brought about even more government expansion and more government control over the American economy and the American people. And it didn't end there. As we know, there was the Great Society. Here's Lyndon Johnson doing one of his favorite things. He loved signing pieces of legislation. Here he's signing the bill establishing Medicare. And it occurs under both parties. It's not just uh, Democrats. It's also Republicans. Here he's giving a, a badge. I think it's a Drug Enforcement Agency badge to Elvis. <laughs> but of course, Richard Nixon was more than happy to intervene in the economy and create things like the EPA. And, 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 and of course, the pendulum does swing. And uh, you know, there, there is this, this, this time in the 1970s and 1980s, where, where people like Ronald Reagan, and even before him, Jimmy Carter, deregulated the airlines, where people begin to embrace 
the greater toleration of individual liberty and free markets. And, and yet we know that, that people in both parties can be enemies to such things. And uh, you, you have to ask yourself, you know, where will it end? What can we do? But it seems to me that if we look back to our founding, if we look back to the things that liberated us from British control, the answer really does lie with us. The answer really does lie with the American people. The American people who are willing to stand up and assert their rights. The American people who are willing to stand up and, and make the point that the purpose of government isn't to, to take stuff from people and shuffle it around, but the pur purpose of government it's to protect us as individuals, to protect our lives, to protect our liberty, to protect our property, that, that only under these circumstances, that only in this sort of nation, can we truly and really be free. Thank you very much. Three, three minutes. So we have time uh, just for a couple of uh, questions. Uh, and yeah, we'll start with you, Will. All right, I've got a two-part question. Um, so uh, could you kind of go into uh, the tax structure overall from the early colonies? I know you mentioned the whiskey tax. And I know you're not a tax policy analyst either, but could you kind of give what you think would be the ideal scenario for our own tax structure now? <laughs> you know, I'm a historian. I tell stories. Uh, I, 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 will, I will leave that question to, to people who really know what they're, they're talking about. I mean, I, I, it's a great question, and I'd love to, to, to explore the answers uh, to it, but just not really in my, my wheelhouse. So, Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yes? Uh, two Civil War-related questions, if I may. Um, I have read more than one source that the opportunity, that Lincoln had the opportunity, uh, and probably the power, to... Uh, purchase all of the slaves uh, from slave owners, after all, it was their property at the time, um, and at a cost, at a collective cost, which would have been minuscule in compared with the cost of life and fortune in the Civil War. If that, which I read, was true, why wasn't it done? What was the thinking that made that politically a bad idea? Uh, and the second question, as to the issue of secession, since one of our first principles is, I believe, uh, the right of peoples to select their form of government and self-determination and related principles, from a purely constitutional standpoint, didn't the southern states have applying those principles have the right to secede if they didn't choose to be governed by the then federal government? Okay, two big questions and I have very... 11 seconds. Oh. <laughs> I, okay, I so super time? quick, I, I, think, I think that this, why, why did Lincoln not buy the slaves? I'm not sure that it was a serious proposal and the South made it clear that the slaves were not for sale. So, so you know, that's my quick answer to the first question. Is secession uh, legitimate? Um, you could make good principled constitutional arguments that it is. You could say that uh, when the states ratified the Constitution, they did not think that this was some sort of roach motel and they could never leave. Um, but, but was the South justified in, in declaring its independence in 1860 and 1861? I think if you look at the, 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 the standards laid down in things like the Declaration, the standards laid down in things like common sense, I don't think the South had passed that threshold. Um, I think it was premature. So thank you very much.